Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. And welcome back to the Dear Prudence podcast. This is Mallory Ortberg, also known as Dear Prudence. And today in the studio, we've got with us Slate's very own Christina Cotarucci. And before we get started today, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about summer jobs. We are coming up on summer. We're not coming up on summer. We're in the middle of summer. And I was thinking the other day, especially of a particular phrase that gets used a lot when people have summer jobs, especially in retail or, or in food service. And it's one of the most upsetting phrases, I think, in human history, and that is, if there's time to lean, there's time to clean, which is a thing that shift managers actually say to people uh, who have jobs usually working with customers. And it sounds like the most dystopian Dr. Seuss rhyming couplet I can possibly think of. First of all, you should never berate people in rhyme. That's horrifying. Um, There's something about it that just feels really creepy. And also... You know, if people need to lean, we're not horses. We can't lock our knees for eight solid hours. Like, if you're listening to this and you're a shift manager, I'm certainly not encouraging you to just overlook lollygagging. Obviously, encourage side work. Like, people should should be working during their shifts. But maybe if someone has time to lean, they really need to lean. And you should consider allowing it and not speaking to them like some sort of sinister gesture. Like, if there is time to lean, there is time to clean. Why do you take away work from the queen? Like, that's creepy. I don't think you should do it. I don't like it. I didn't like it when I was working. I don't like hearing it when I overhear a manager say it. Now, please stop. And that's all I have to say about that today. I have never heard that phrase, oh, and Christine, I am so lucky. thoroughly disturbed by it. It actually reminds me of my worst summer job when I worked at Cesario's Pizza in Manchester, New Hampshire. Do not patronize it if it's still there. <laughs> uh, I lasted about three days. The managers yelled at me, sexually harassed me, made me cry. And I'm sure, though they never actually specifically told me that I should be cleaning rather than leaning, that that is the motivating force behind their business and employee philosophy. I mean, if you think about it, the the phrase is literally, if you exhibit any sort of physical vulnerability, (laughs) you must begin scrubbing floors. Especially because uh, maybe the place is clean. That That was always the most, I think sort of uh, insanity-inducing aspect of it was this would often be I had done all my side work and there was a genuine lull. Like, sometimes there is truly no work to be done for several minutes. And then a manager would blow through and say, if there's time to lean, there's time to clean. It would just be like, everything's clean. I could sort of be perpetually rubbing down the counter with a rag like an old-timey <laughs> barkeep, but that would purely be uh, like an exhibition, like it would just be going through the motions to make you happy. There's truly nothing to be done right now. Yeah, and I think people need a little bit of lean time in order to make their clean time as productive as possible. Look at that. You came up with a rhyme <laughs> right back at them. Take that. We've got our own rhymes. <laughs> I don't know what the slate version would be. If there's time to gripe, there's time to type. Why don't we um, go ahead and take some letters now? This one's called Toxic Friend. I have a friend who has both high-functioning autism and anxiety. 
Often, we have found her using her disorders as an excuse to behave poorly. I really hate to say that because I want to be supportive of her mental health needs, but I feel that there's no other explanation. She'll flirt with my boyfriend, touching him, trying to hold his hand, and joking that they'd be a cute couple together, and then burst into tears when he tells her to knock it off, telling us that she can't help it and often creating a very public scene. She will also hit and jab us with her nails, hard enough to leave marks, take our things, and blame it on her disorders. Again, when we tell her to cut it out, she bursts into tears. We didn't start having these confrontations in public. We've taken her aside to talk privately, and we get the same results. Most of our group of friends is fed up with her behavior, but a few insist that she can't help it and will often bring her along, uninvited, to every event, even into my home. Many of us are not sure what to do because we do not want to cause a rift. Any advice would be appreciated. So we thought we would start you off with a really easy one. Uh, Well, first of all, I don't think uh, any friend that's physically abusive deserves a place in anyone's life, especially if that friend offers repeated excuses for their abuse. Right. And I think this this sort of needs to be said. Anybody who would attempt to use something like having autism or or dealing with anxiety as an excuse for physically hurting other people, um, that's just not true. There's 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 that's a really um, unpleasant way of of sort of weaponizing a diagnosis. Uh, the vast, vast majority of people with either uh, anxiety disorders or who are on the spectrum do not hurt other people. And and I think it's uh, sort of insulting to, to those people to suggest, I, I can't help but harm you uh, because of my emotional or mental uh, uh, issues um, is is a cop-out. Um, and it's it's destructive. It's destructive and it kind of perpetuates the stigma against mental health issues. And probably does a disservice to anyone else in this friend group who might also be uh, you know, living with anxiety and has to watch somebody uh, take advantage of that diagnosis to make her manipulative behavior seem appropriate. Right, right. And and I, of course, uh, I also want to be sympathetic to this person who's clearly in a lot of distress. But I think the really important thing to remember for the letter writer is uh, you're absolutely right in saying that she should not be trying to hold your boyfriend's hand or telling him that he'd be better off with her. Um, and that it's not okay when she jabs you with her fingernails, and it's really appropriate for you to draw a boundary. Uh, and if anybody, like like your friends are sort of working against you by saying, well, we're bringing her over to your house anyways, um, it's really okay for you to say, then you need to leave. Yeah, I think it's appropriate to make that a condition for any friend hangout, whether at this person's own house or in a group, um, just to say, you know, I-, I want to hang out with you, but... If this other person is going to be there, I can't. Yeah, and I think to make it really clear that this is about behavior and to not sort of, you know, the 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 line that her other friends have sort of bought is because she experiences these mental and emotional issues, her behavior is completely out of her control. So if you are asking her not to come around because of her behavior, it's actually about her autism, her anxiety. Um, and that's clearly not the case, and that's not something she needs to buy into. So to make it really clear... If someone tries to say, well, uh, you're stigmatizing her or, or, or this is you're prejudiced against her to make it really clear this is about behavior. Um, this is about I don't want her to hit me um, and I don't want her to try to hold my boyfriend's hand and tell him that they should go out like that's a y- you should stand firm in the truth that you are being sensible, reasonable um, and, and not at all prejudiced uh, by asking for that. Yeah. And the hard thing about 
making it about autism or anxiety is, I mean, I can totally understand where this letter writer is coming from because it's it's human nature, especially if this is a friend or part of a group of friends, to feel sympathetic and to want to give somebody the benefit of the doubt. And of course, you know, in, in any friendship, uh, we overlook and explain away annoying and sometimes harmful behaviors. But it's clear that this one, this just crosses the line. Um, and so I can really understand where the person is coming from. I don't think, uh, you know, they're a pushover. Mm-hmm. Or they shouldn't feel bad about uh, having put up with this behavior for so long. Um, I hope they can find the strength to put their foot down. Yep, yep. And I, 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 <clears throat> I understand their reluctance because I think it's far more common that people would not be accommodating to a friend with anxiety and autism. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that uh, they're understandably worried about being that sort of person who says, well, you behave in a way that I find slightly confusing or different, and so I don't want you around me. Um, and I think that that's good that they're very careful about not wanting to do that. But, um, you know, like it's it's really like the fact that she uses tears to keep people from calling her out on her behavior is really um, – I think, manipulative. Uh, and I think it's a way to stop the conversation. Like, oh, if you're going to... <clears throat> Sorry, everyone. Um, if, if if you're going to say, I can't hit on your boyfriend in front of you, I'm going to start to cry. And now the conversation becomes around, I'm sad. People have to make me feel better by overlooking the thing I just did and promising me that they won't challenge me on it in the future. Um, and that's um, not something that you have to give into. Right. Um, and I hope, you know, if... If this person does end up getting help uh, or, or being able to, if this person, if this toxic friend ends up uh, finding a way to change their behaviors for good, um, I hope that, you know, their friends would hopefully give them the benefit of the doubt. But uh, there's only so many chances you can give somebody before it's clear that the problem is uh, with them and that it's making everyone's life a little bit worse because of it. Right. And you can always say, like, I genuinely wish this person well. I I don't wish them harm. But it's also really clear to me that I don't want them around me. Um, And those are two things. I think you can say that without saying this person is bad and should be consigned to, you know, being cast out and no one should ever help them. You can say, I hope this person is able to improve the way they treat their friends. Um, That said, I also don't want to spend time together because they've made it clear that they're going to um, behave super inappropriately with my partner and try to hurt hurt me. Yeah, and not that I necessarily think these friends are enablers or anything, but that might be a message that this toxic friend needs to hear, mm-hmm. that uh, this kind of behavior is not appropriate and it's going to cost them a lot of relationships. Right. This is way lower down on the scale, but I don't love the use of the word toxic to describe people. I can understand why it's useful because it's kind of describing this person has a real habit of bringing pain into my life, but it it sort of makes it sound like some people are radioactive or somehow like inherently uh, damaging to be around. And I think um, that can get really, uh, that makes me nervous when someone, when someone is described as toxic in such a way that's sort of like, and therefore uh, I don't have to think of them as a person and everyone should understand that we should all be cutting them out of their lives. And I think it's more important to focus on her behavior rather than to right. say this is a toxic person. I don't know why that's a distinction that feels important to me. Um, but for whatever it's worth, I don't think this is the primary issue here. But uh, 
yeah, I think if you're going to call someone toxic, maybe think for a minute about what you're what you're trying to accomplish there. Yeah, that's a good point. I think it's uh, calling a person toxic would probably be unfair to a, a very good person and also unfair mm-hmm. to a very, very uh, a person who behaves in a toxic manner most of the right, time. Yeah, because I mean, I think there's there's certainly a chance that this woman could be given feedback and, and try to change. Like she might become not toxic in the future. Mm-hmm. And then I think it would be harder to, to recast the way you thought of her if you had already sort of mentally consigned her to toxicity. All right. Right. I feel like we've handled this one great. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and read the next letter. So this one is called Married But Living Apart. Dear Prudence, after my youngest child turned 18, my brother went overseas for a short-term job. I've been staying at his vacant house for three months to house it and partly to get a break from all the mothering I've been doing since my early 20s. My house-sitting services are about to end, and the problem is I don't want to move back into my house. I love having my own place, and I want to find some place to rent on my own. I love my husband and adult children who all live at home. But it's nice, very nice, to be by myself. I never had that. My husband is the kind of person who needs mothering. And I actually feel closer to him now that we live separately. We see each other regularly, and I have zero interest in actually separating from our marriage or seeing other people. Am I crazy and selfish? Is it outrageous for a happily married couple to live apart? I love this question, uh, mostly because I don't think it's outrageous for a happily married couple to live apart. I think there should be more room for that in marriages. I think that people should always just uh, do what feels right, whether that's cohabitating or living apart some of the time or all of the time. Um, So first of all, I just want to say that I don't think that that's being crazy or selfish. Um, I think if that's what works best, that's awesome. Mm -hmm. But I also think that there could be some solutions for this person that don't necessarily mean renting a completely separate apartment. First of all, it seems like part of the problem is that the adult children and presumably adult husband need mothering. Uh, right. that's unfair and seems like something that could be solved I within sort of the home. I bristle at that description. Like, well, my husband's the kind of person who needs mothering. <laughs> and you can sort of hear in that, oh, they had a conversation a long time ago where he just established himself as, what are you going to do? I'm the kind of I person need who needs mothering. <laughs> you know, that kind of person who's not capable of taking care of himself, that kind of person you have to commit to mothering for the rest of his life. You know, that kind who can't change or learn. Um, and it's like, he probably enjoys mothering. He probably loves the way that you mother him. But um, he won't die if you stop. It's very unlikely, I think, um, especially given that she doesn't mention that there's any sort of condition he has that requires full-time care, uh, that he does not, in fact, need mothering. And um, maybe this is sort of the first time she's realized that she doesn't have to because she was able to live apart from him. Mm-hmm. Um But, like, you could also live at home and not pick up after him and not take care of him and not make his appointments for him and not, you know, I'm just picturing her, like, feeding him mango, which is probably an unfair picture of mothering. Like, you know, just, like, putting mango into his mouth and being, like— That's above and beyond what a mother should do. Do you feel nurtured? Um, (laughs) Yeah, it sounds like this house-sitting could have been a good opportunity for both of them, hopefully for the husband, to realize that mothering— 
does not need to be a primary part of their marriage. Mm-hmm. And um, I do want to give him a little credit. She's not saying, like, he's been calling, asking when I'm going to come home. He's really demanding of this. It's, uh, you know, maybe on some level he is happy to see her happy. Yeah, and I think the fact that she said that they feel closer now, or at least she feels closer to him now that they're apart, seems like it could maybe be working for him, too. She doesn't say their house is falling apart, that, you know, everyone has scurvy. It seems like they've been living mm-hmm. without her. Um, and I think, you know, should she decide to move back in, it would probably be important to set boundaries about not mothering adults. Sure. Um, But those are kind of two separate issues, right? One is if we do live together, how do we relate to each other in a way that I don't feel like I'm going to be your mom until I die? mm -hmm. And the other one is it's not just that she likes not picking up after him as much. She really likes living alone. Um, and wants to know if she can kind of give that a try. Like, is it okay for someone with children who live at home, um, even though they're adults, and, and, and a husband that she wants to stay committed to, like, could she live by herself and, and, and have that not be a step back from her family? I think that's completely doable, um, especially since everyone's an adult in the mm-hmm. picture. Uh, there's nobody that needs full-time care, like you said. Right, I right. think that it's possible for adults to have close relationships, familial relationships without living in the same house. I think it's kind of a funny uh, flip of the empty nest syndrome that uh, the children stay in the house and the mother moves out. Right. So so do we think she should go sign a lease like tomorrow? I think that uh, that seems like it would be a big step from mothering children and a husband to completely living apart. I think, you know, it it would necessitate a lot of conversation with the husband and children. I think mm-hmm. if that's what's right for her, she should totally do it. I also think it's possible to, um, you know, if you've got the money to spend on renting a completely separate apartment to outfit a part of the house that is just for you, um, a, you know, a person cave, if you will, um, or to spend that money on trips or to to live apart part of the time if if it seems like too big of a step to live apart all of the time. Yeah, I was thinking my, my first thought was why not keep house sitting? Like if it turns out you're pretty good at it, if you offer your services, there's a lot of different websites um, where you can kind of list yourself as a potential house sitter and sort of ask around like maybe try another few months of, of house sitting as sort of a trial experiment because it's not the financial commitment of signing your own place, but um, you can continue to live by yourself and sort of see how, you know, are things really still good between me and my husband? Is this making me realize uh, I, I want to do this forever or I would only like to do it for part of the year? Like there's a lot of different ways that living apart could look um, and it might be helpful for her to do a couple little trial runs and try to figure out what she wants. That's a great idea. And I hope, I mean, I think more people should think really intentionally about whether living with a married partner is the right thing to do. I mean, I, before I moved in with my partner a couple years ago, and we're not married, but I remember thinking like, it's so hard to find a good roommate. What are the chances that the person I love and want to spend my life with is also going to be a good roommate for me? Yeah. 
I'm also kind of impressed that we've made it through this entire conversation without dropping um, Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell. Because I feel like this always comes up when people are talking about like, you know, someday if I ever get married, I just want to have like a townhome that's right next door to the townhome of my partner. And we can like meet sometimes in the evenings in our living rooms and have long, lazy dinner parties. But like we can go back to sleep in our own bedrooms, just like Goldie and Kurt. Um, And if they ever split up, I think everyone's going to lose it. So, yeah, do it. Live apart. <laughs> Great Give analogy. It a test run. Yeah, see, see how it goes. Uh, this next letter is called What Could Have Been. Dear Prudence, seven years ago, I found myself pregnant by a man I'd only recently started dating. I had just turned 20 and was terrified by the thought of motherhood. The father, let's call him Ted, and I decided that it would be best to terminate the pregnancy. I was, and still am, at peace with my decision. Fast forward to now, Ted and I have been married for almost two years. We have a wonderful relationship and love one another deeply. Recently, Ted has expressed interest in having a baby. Although he knows that the idea of pregnancy and birth and being responsible for a human being scares me, he hopes that I will change my mind. Before we got married, we talked about the possibility of having kids, but neither of us found the idea very desirable. Ted has also brought up the the pregnancy that we decided to terminate and says that he now feels bad because that may have been his only chance of fatherhood. This is deeply upsetting to me because I always believed him that we both felt like this was the best decision for us. I'm afraid that he will secretly resent me for not giving him children, although he denies it. Do you think we can move on from this? How can I help my husband more in the life that could have been? I I wish we could go back to Kurt and Goldie. I know. This is difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's I, – I feel like I say this all the time. I think there's two issues here. Um, and I do think there are two issues here. One is whether or not these two um, – like how they can compromise where it sounds like one person wants a baby and the other person um, isn't 100% sure but is definitely leaning towards no. And the other one is, is it okay for him to bring up an abortion that you had seven years ago um, in order to try to change your mind about having children now? And the first issue, like, we can talk about that one. That's great. Um, the second one's pretty shitty. Mm-hmm. Like, to say, hey, remember that abortion we both agreed was a really good idea seven years ago? Well, now I feel bad about it, and I think it was my only chance at fatherhood, <laughs> and I'd like to make you feel so bad that you give me, like, a regret baby now. Yeah, to me that sounds like uh, manipulative behavior, especially because it's clear that they were both being honest with each other it seems like even Ted recognizes that, uh, you know, that was a decision he made. He regrets that decision, but that, you know, they were honest with each other at the time. Um, and to make somebody feel bad about that or to hold that over their head as a reason to enter parenthood uh, is a pretty shitty move. Right. Yeah. You both agreed at the time that an abortion was the right choice. Um, it's really, I-, I would say, like, really unkind of him to bring it up now and to suggest that she has taken away something from him. This was a decision you both agreed upon. It was not right for you at the time. It's a totally separate issue from whether or not you guys should have a child now. Um, And I think he needs to knock it off. I think he needs to, if he's like having a lot of conflict about the idea of never being a parent, he can talk about that. That's fine. But to bring up uh, her previous abortion is is underhanded and, and frankly, ungentlemanly. Sir, like, <laughs> and also just illogical because that if they hadn't 
terminated the pregnancy, the idea of fatherhood would have looked completely different seven years ago than whatever he's imagining it to be now. Yeah. I mean, you can't unring that bell. Like, there's no reason to bring it up now. So, like, strike one against Ted. Um, Not impressed. Uh, The other issue is, you know, do you think we can move on from this? How do I help my husband mourn the life that could have been? Okay, I mean, that says to me, this person's not conflicted. She doesn't want a baby. This woman does not want to be a parent. Mm-hmm. Her goal is to help her husband accept that. Like, she does not want to be talked into it. She's not sort of on the fence. She's in the no category. And I think it's telling maybe that she used the word mourn. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and plenty of people do memorialize and name um, potential children that they've lost through miscarriages. I'm sure some people do that for after abortions, too. Um, I think if it truly is something that he's grieving about, that could be an option. No, that's bullshit. Because seven years ago, he wasn't sad. Seven years, like at the time, he was like, this is a really good idea. Like, this is, he's a different, he's in a different place now. This has nothing to do with the abortion. Like, you don't get, like, delayed onset abortion grief seven (laughs) years later. Um, I don't know. I mean, I have a hard time understanding abortion grief to begin with, so I don't want to, you know, make any judgments against somebody who does experience that. I guess also it's different coming from the person who's was not carrying the pregnancy to begin with. Yeah, I I mean, he was fine at the time. He wants something different now. And I think he sees her previous abortion as a useful bargaining chip. And I'm just not going to let him do it. Like, I'm coming down hard against it. No. Do you think, uh, do you think they should, that they can compromise? Mm, No. Uh, I think he can either accept the fact that she doesn't want to have children. He's not going to be a parent. Um, or he can decide that being a father is important enough to him that he's going to have to leave the relationship. Um, but I'm not seeing anything in her letter that suggests um, she's interested in being talked around um, or that the two of them would be good parents together, frankly. Like, if this is the way that he wants to open the conversation, like, hey, remember when you ruined my only chance of becoming a parent um, and how I said I supported the abortion at the time, but I've changed my mind now? Like, that's not. That's not the beginning of, like, a great parenting story. Um, right, and, and not I'm, the beginning of a great parent either, if if either right. parent enters it because of guilt or regret. Right, right. I, I would have a lot more respect for his position if he just said, look, like, cards on the table. I've realized I really want to become a father. This is deeply important to me. Um, and I want to be really honest about what I want, which is just to have a child. And if if he could just be honest about that. Um, and not try to use her past against her, not try to rewrite the things that they did together that they both agreed upon at the time. Um, I, I, I would think there was maybe a slightly better chance of compromise. But as it is, um, I don't know. I don't, I don't have a lot of hope for this relationship. Um, and I hope very much that she doesn't allow him to kind of manipulate her into like, quote-unquote, giving him a baby because she took one away from him in the past, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's not her responsibility to give no. him children. That is a really kind of disturbing way to put it. Right. If he wants to be a father someday, he's responsible for making that happen. That's not something that she is the gatekeeper of. Like, if you want to be a parent after marrying somebody where you both agreed we don't want children, like, the onus is upon you to make yourself clear and to make a decision. Mm-hmm. And if he really, you know, wanted to 
commit to the relationship. And if they did, if he stopped uh, holding the abortion over her head, uh, there's plenty of ways to be involved with children and have impacts on children's lives that don't involve parenthood. So Nope, it's parenting or nothing. <laughs> That's it. You can't help children otherwise. I don't know if you knew that, but there's no other way to help them. Yeah, you're really yeah. harsh. I, I know, appreciate I know. the tough today love just, you're giving. Uh, I'm just not having Ted it. and his wife. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I just I don't like sneaky tactics. I don't like emotional manipulation, and I really don't like someone trying to rewrite the past when they did something at the time and they're like, "Yep, this is great," and then seven years later they're like, "Actually, it was not." Um, so, anyways, yeah. Uh, good luck, letter writer. I, know. I think. Your husband needs to be way clearer about what he wants and not try to use manipulation as a tool to get what he needs. Um, And you need to really stand firm. Like, don't have a child just because he's trying to make you feel guilty. I think you would regret that deeply. Um, And uh, whether or not you guys stay together, uh, I think it's much more important for you both to say, here's what I want. Do you want the same thing? And, and, And then make a decision from there. Yes. Agreed. Good luck. Yeah, seriously. Okay. Uh, So um, speaking of what I fear might be this couple's future, this next letter is called, Should I Tell My Kids My Marriage is Dead? Oi. Dear Prudence, my wife and I have been married for 14 years, mostly unhappily. She cheated on me while we were dating, and I cheated on her during the marriage. We've had couples counseling, and it clarified everything we already knew. We are not compatible and probably never should have gotten married. However, we two, we have two wonderful boys, 10 and 12. We've stayed together for their sake. I have a job that requires me to move every two or three years, so a divorce would force one of us to live far away from our sons. My question is this. Now that they're getting older, should I be open with the boys about the reality of our marriage? My wife and I haven't had sex in more than four years, and half the time I fall asleep on the couch instead of going to our room. Although I stopped cheating to prevent a divorce, we are no longer lovers. My wife and I work hard to be civil and good co-parents, but we're not friends, and I'm simply waiting until the boys are off to college before I will put an end to this marriage. Of course, the boys must notice this. I don't want them to think this is normal or healthy. I want them to avoid our mistakes. And I want them to know that their mother and I are enduring being locked in a loveless marriage because we love them so much. Should I tell them that? Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, I don't that's think a real kicker. <laughs> I don't think it's uh, any child, especially a child 10 or 12 years old, needs to hear that or, or would feel particularly grateful for a parent staying in a loveless, sexless, joyless marriage for years on their behalf. Yeah. Uh, I also am of the school of thought that says uh, an unhappy parent is not the best parent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it sounds like both of these parents are deeply unhappy. You mean it wouldn't reassure you if one of your parents said, kids, I'm sure you've noticed that I'm miserable all the time, but I just want you to know it's I've trapped myself in a miserable marriage because <laughs> I love you so much, which means it's your fault. I'm unhappy. Ooh. Like, that's yeah, that's what, the I mean, subtext there, isn't it? That is what any kid would hear. Like, I, I do, I don't want to be too hard on this guy because I understand that he's, like, in a terrible position. Um, and that people who are, like, trapped in a partnership with someone they're not friends with uh, are likely to do and say kind of outrageous things because they're in a lot of pain. Like, I don't, I, I, I don't want to be really hard on him, but I, I think he doesn't realize that his kids won't hear that and think, oh, my parents, like, made a mistake, but they're doing the best with it. And I'm really glad that he kind of, like, took me into his confidence and let me know that he's suffering for my sake. A kid's going to hear that and think, like, 
My parents hate each other. This family is miserable. They're only pretending to like each other because I came along, which means it's my fault that both my parents are unhappy. My house is a stressful place where I have to, like, come home and be such a good little kid that my parents aren't miserable. Like, you're making—you would make your child feel responsible for your happiness, which would be, I think, a real um, abandonment of your job as a parent. Like, your job as a parent is to make your kid feel safe, secure, and loved. And if you take him into your confidence like he's some sort of therapist or a a friend, um, you're you're making him parent you, and that's not okay. And not even an adult likes to hear that, that I made— this decision that's making me unhappy for your sake. Right. Like, so you can't question Please be grateful for that. Yeah, yeah. Instead of feeling guilty and resentful. Yeah, so number one, no, you should not tell your kids this. I do understand that you want them to have a different view of marriage than what you've modeled for them. I think that that impulse is really understandable, but I think your proposed solution is a mistake. I think you should see a therapist. Like, if your plan is really... Another eight years of this, um, you should be in, frankly, couples counseling, not couples counseling designed to make you two fall back in love with one another, but to figure out what's really the best way to be co-parents. Like, I know you've kind of decided it would be impossible for one of us to live far away from the boys, even part of the time. Therefore, this is our only option. But I do feel like you have other options between getting divorced and splitting up to different sides of the world and sort of miserably sleeping on the couch every night. Um, and there are jobs where you don't have to move every two years. Right. And I, I I think there are ways in which you could probably at least consider the possibility of separating but still living together. Like, let's say you have another two moves left before the the boys go off to college. Like, it's not, you know, sort of like in the last letter or a couple letters back where someone was saying, hey, can my husband and I still be married if we live apart? Um, like, does getting divorced mean you have to move away from your kids? Not necessarily. Like, maybe the right next move for you guys would be, like, separating but living very close to one another and being more honest about the fact that you're separated but co-parenting. Um, there are ways to be honest about the state of your relationship that do not involve taking your 10- and 12-year-old sons aside and saying, by the way, I don't fuck your mom anymore. <laughs> um, There's also still time for them to learn a better example of what a loving marriage can and should be um if they if they keep living this charade for six or eight years um and that's all their kids have ever known is these two uh, miserable parents suffering secretly wishing that they could tell their kids just how horrible they've made their lives Mm -hmm. uh not that it would be too late but uh i think that the lessons that they're modeling would have set in a little deeper yeah. Yeah. So I think number one, no, don't tell your kids this. If you have a really strong desire to tell your kids something, uh, I think you should go to a couple's counselor and run any ideas you have past them first. Like think about what would be age appropriate for a 10 year old to hear. Does a 10 year old need to hear? Um, I don't love your mother. We're staying together so that you can see both of us on a daily basis. No pressure. Um, <laughs> and a, a child's counselor would probably be good too, especially yeah. if they do decide to separate. 
Yeah, I, I think your your general impulse to be more honest is a good one. Um, I think the specific way in which you're looking to add honesty into your family situation is not the right one. But I do encourage you to consider pursuing honesty. And like maybe that does mean separating and saying to your kids, hey, we're splitting up, but we still love you guys. And we're both really committed to being together as a family because you're still going to be a family with this woman for the rest of your life. Like you're not in love with her. It's very clear that the marriage is is not one that's going to be revived. But she is still your family. She's the mother of your kids. You're the father of her kids. Um, and I think, frankly, you can't put divorce on the table. You know, like people get divorced and do long distance parenting and visit sometimes. Like that is not the worst thing that could happen to you. Like allow yourself that vision. Because I think if you take an option off the table and feel like, nope, only option is miserable on the couch, um, you're going to want to do stuff to blow up your own life, like tell your children things that they don't need to know yet. Um, So consider that as an option. Consider separating. Go to a couple's counselor. um, Figure out how to express these feelings that do not put pressure on your kids. Solved. Yeah, we fixed it. You're welcome. All right, we've got one more letter. Um, that's uh, a little bit uh, lighter, uh, and it's called The Three-Body Problem. Uh, Dear Prudence, I am a lesbian med student in my second year, and I've got a problem. I was sort of dating an old college friend of mine long distance up until about a year ago when she called it off due to the distance. I was really sad, but I understood, and I tried to move on with my life. I met someone else, and we started dating, and I've been seeing her for almost half a year now. I recently visited the city where the ex lives, for a fellowship interview, and I ran into the ex there, and one thing led to another, and we ended up sleeping together. Then a week later, she called me up and told me that she'd made a huge mistake and she wanted to try again if I was willing. Prudence, I like my new girlfriend a lot, but we haven't been dating for that long, and I don't have a strong feeling about whether we have a long-term future. She's about to start her last year of med school, and we'll probably end up moving to another state soon. But I'm really hesitant to, first of all, break her heart by ending things in a way that she won't see coming, and second of all, uh, to commit to a long-distance relationship with a woman who has shown commitment problems in the past. At the same time, I really do think we might have a wonderful future together, and I don't want to end up wondering what might have been for us. Her moving to my state is not an option right now because her career is going really well where she is, although she has said that she would probably have an opportunity to move with me when I graduate. I don't know how to think about this, and it's hurting my sleep and my studies. Help me, Prudence. Woo. Yeah. Um, so hmm. I've actually been this ex. Which ex? Uh, oh, the, the ex one with who the... thinks things can't work between us, and then a while later has kind of suffered and said, ah, I, I would like to try again if you're willing, please. And how think did about your it. ex respond? We got back together, and it worked out great, actually. Um, I mean, it wasn't exactly this scenario, but it was not too dissimilar. Um, And it was, first of all, really hard to kind of come back and say, hey, I've really been giving this thought. And the problems that I considered insurmountable in the past, like having now experienced a lot of time without you, I think are now surmountable. And I think I, I would be more willing to try them. Like a, a couple of other things had also significantly changed that that made things much, um, much more possible for the two of us. But yeah, I, I have been that ex, and and we gave it a try, and it worked out. So that's encouraging. Uh, I, I um, want to at least offer that perspective. I think that uh, it seems like this letter writer does not seem too committed or loving the idea of being committed to their current 
partner. Right. That's not that's not a big factor for them. They so sort that of seem makes like, me think we're probably going to break up soon anyways. They should definitely break up soon anyway mm-hmm. um, because there's no reason to uh, stay in a relationship just because you're scared of breaking somebody's heart or because you don't really have any better options right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so it seems like that relationship should end possibly before it gets if they, you know, get in too deep where breaking up would be even more painful. Right. And I mean, if you if you didn't end a relationship because you were afraid of making someone feel bad, no one would ever break up. Yeah. And it's not going to get any better. It's like when there's food in my fridge that I'm not sure if it's still good enough, so I don't eat it, but it's never getting any fresher. So What a horrible way to throw think it of out people. now. <laughs> they are consumables that can be ruined with time. They're yogurt. <laughs> Um, um, yeah. Okay. So uh, definitely go ahead and end this relationship you're currently in. Do you dare going back to the big ex who has burned you before? Well, I say if, yes. If the distance was the problem to begin with, though, distance is still a factor. And it doesn't seem like – I mean, I don't know how long med school is. At Pretty least long. four years. Um, and the letter writer said that it's – that moving doesn't seem like an option until she graduates. So. Right. Uh, I mean, there's the possibility of making more frequent trips to visit the person, dating them, but not necessarily committing wholeheartedly to a monogamous life intertwined relationship. Sort of keeping the door open, like we'll sort of do a test run commitment right now. And then when I graduate, we'll upgrade our relationship to a real one. That yeah, sort of thing. if it seems right. Because also people change, and it's definitely possible in the next couple of years of med school. Med school, mm-hmm. I hear, is very transformative. Mm-hmm. That feelings could change. Um, and that moving across the country doesn't seem like such a good option anymore. Or that uh, the distance has grown too wide. Uh, but maybe it's a Mallory Ortberg kind of relationship. I mean... Uh, yeah, I, I do want to acknowledge, by the way, like this is not the exact same situation I was ever in. And just because I'm really glad someone took me back doesn't mean everyone should take all of their exes back whenever they call and say I've made a huge mistake. Um, just to be clear. So I think there's a couple options, all of which could work. I think this letter writer has a couple different possible futures that that could be good. One of which is actually don't break up with your new girlfriend. Um, uh, like you've only been dating for four or five months. Um you could keep dating her and see where it goes. Like, it's possible. Sometimes I've been in relationships where the first couple months were, like, really nice, but I didn't didn't really have that moment where I thought, wow, I really see myself with this person. And then as we got to know each other, had certain experiences together, I saw them in a new way. And I thought, wow, like, I liked you before, and now I'm just super, super into you. So that's a possibility. Like, you could keep dating. There's nothing unpleasant about your relationship right now. And it sounds like you think you might break up soon, but it's not like we have to break up by October when she's moving to the moon. Um, so that's an option. You can have that. The other is you could break up with your new girlfriend because you don't feel super strongly about her, um, but you also don't want to go back to your ex because of the old commitment issues. So you could just be single for a while. That would probably help your sleep and your studies a lot. You would have free time <laughs> to study more about medicine. You'd sleep better. Um, and you could sort of like keep your head down and not try to juggle complicated relationships and medical school at the same time. Or... You could, you know, roll the dice. Like, I think your ex is the one who ended things because of long distance and then had to sort of sit with the results of her decision and they did not make her happy. Like, she did not end the relationship and then say, well, that was a really good idea for me. Like, obviously, I missed this person, but this was the right call. The distance wasn't worth it. I'm moving on. Like, she sat with that and said, 
oh, God, I've made a really big mistake. Like, this person and this relationship to me is more important than the distance. And if I get a second chance, I would really like to make it work kind of no matter what. And that, again, it's not a guarantee that things will work out. It, it could very easily, the same thing could happen again. But there's at least, I think, I think you can make some calculated risks. And this is a risk that doesn't seem outrageous to me. This isn't someone who's like, we've broken up to, and gotten back together 50 times and it always ends in heartbreak and cheating. Like, this is, you know, a calculated risk that you could take. And she's expressed, like... I know before I said I wasn't willing to move, but now I'm willing to move, like, in two years. Um, so, you know, like, I, tentatively, I think all three options are good ones. Probably number two would be the best, where you don't date anybody and you just become the world's greatest doctor and then everyone falls in love with you because of your healing hands. Um, but <laughs> but you can certainly consider number three. Like, give it a shot. If not, you're going to be a hot doctor at the end of all of this. You know what I mean? Like, you can have anyone you want. <laughs> Um, but they did. So the ex did not change her mind until they slept together during an impromptu, sexy weekend getaway mm -hmm. chance meeting. Because maybe the ex had thought they're like totally over me now. It's been months and months and months. Like I can't, you know, then they got confirmation of, oh, the connection is still there. They are still interested. Now I can call. Or maybe seeing their ex in person made them gave them an unrealistic memory of mm. romanticized hindsight rose tinted glasses memory of How the relationship. How dare you suggest that's what I did? It's possible. Because this letter's about me. <laughs> um yes, that's absolutely possible. Like I'm sure this letter writer knows their ex fairly well. Like if you feel like they had not been thinking about you a lot and then saw you and were like, oh I remember you. We had fun together. Let's do this again. Then that might give you pause. But sometimes people don't say things because they think, I made a big mistake. I can't hurt this person again. Um, I already shot my shot. And uh, it takes a little something extra to sort of embolden them to say, I've, I've made a mistake. I miss you. I'd like to try this again. Yeah. Um, it takes a lot of courage to make that leap and to yeah. also admit sort of a personal mistake or a regret. Yep. Yep. So I would say certainly if you were to take her back, like— uh, the the possibility is greater than zero that the same problems will come back up and, and things won't necessarily work out. Um, but it also, it doesn't seem to me like, oh, it's a done deal. If you take her back, the exact same things are going to happen. Like, maybe you'll be the happiest doctor lesbian in the world. And you guys will get four dogs and you'll name them all after, I don't know, famous doctors <laughs> like Galen <laughs> and whoever else is a famous doctor from history. I hope I that know. happens. Keep us posted. Let us know which one of those three options you take um, and, and and please write back with, with uh, an update. And also, I'm going to send you a screenshot of this weird mole that I have. Thanks in advance. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We'd like to all ask you for free medical advice. Well, Christina, thank you so much for joining us uh, today and for giving all your wonderful opinions to us. Thank you for having me. This was fun. Good luck with that mole. <laughs> Speaking, by the way, of breakups and how to conduct yourself in such a way, not always that you're being your best self, because none of us can be our best self through the entirety of a breakup, but um, in such a way that people will not send emails that you have sent them to advice columnists. Uh, I recently got an example of one way to really hamstring yourself from a reader who had recently 
uh, ended things with a girlfriend, and the girlfriend had sent an email saying, you know, never talk to me again. Like, you and I have nothing left to say to each other. I'm furious with you. I never want to talk to you again. Which is definitely, like, a choice that you can make. Like, that's a strong ending. That's like, I don't need you. I don't want you in my life. We are donezo. And, like, really sticking to it is a strong choice. It's not always the best choice, but it's a strong one. Um, You undermine the strength of that choice when you follow it up with an email saying, unless you happen to find my Starbucks card. Uh, I think that I had it in a bag or maybe put it in your wallet and left it there. And I always have a really good feeling when I use that card because it gives me positive associations with the city that they were in. I don't want to give away too many identifying details. I can't remember where it is, but you might stumble on it. And if you do, please throw it in an envelope and send it to me and then gives their work address. Like, I strongly encourage you to let that Starbucks card go. I mean, I understand that sometimes... Like, having a Starbucks card is really wonderful, um, but, like, just eat the $15, you know? Like, don't don't let that ruin the strength of never talk to me again unless you find my Starbucks card. I am not sure where it is. Maybe in a bag. Maybe in a wallet. Anyways, I like Starbucks a lot, and so if you find it, please mail it to my place of work. Like, that's just—that's a weak ending. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. It gives meaning to my life. Our producer is Casey Miner. Our theme music was composed, I am told, by Robin Hilton. I have no proof of this. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Do you want us to answer your question? Call and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR. That's 401-371-3327, and you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name and location, and at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. If you'd like, you can also record your question using the voice memo app or equivalent on your smartphone. Please keep it short, 30 seconds, a minute tops. Send it to me at prudence at slate.com. not even like an interestingly good ending like please please take me back it's just i'll never talk to you again unless i think i could get three to four lattes out of it like that's that's petty don't be petty and if you're going to be petty be petty in a in a magnificent and operatic sort of way be really petty be petty like and remember the third time we went out and i said i liked that thing you like well i didn't like that's that's the kind of petty that you should really be reaching for not like do you have my Starbucks rewards card? Um, this, by the way, has not been sponsored by Starbucks in in any way. They are not interested in this podcast. I don't think this story paints them in a particularly positive light. Um, just wanted you to know that. <laughs>